Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. We'll be reading this morning Luke 17, verses 22 through 37. Go ahead and remain seated. This is a bit of a longer text. Luke 17, beginning in verse 22, he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must uh, suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Father, we need your help this morning uh, as we try to learn and grow from your word. We know that every Part of your scripture is given to us for a reason, and some are more difficult than others. We pray that you would help us uh, as we seek to understand and apply what it is that you have for us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to begin with a confession this morning, though I am not seeking absolution or anything like that. But I will admit that I have not really been looking forward to preaching this text. Uh, Not because I don't like it or because I don't agree with it, but because I don't know what it means. And uh, as difficult as it is sometimes to teach the Bible, it's even harder when you don't know what it means. Uh, So I did more reading than I typically do this week in preparation for this, in addition to studying Greek, reading it over and over in English, sentence diagram, all that normal study that Bible nerds do. I did a lot of reading of commentaries and sermons from other theologians that I respect uh, because I just couldn't figure out some of the parts of this text. And uh, I found out they don't really know either. And so while that's encouraging on one side, that it's not just me that's struggling with this, it wasn't very helpful either, uh, because I still have to stand up here for 30 minutes and say something about it. So what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to give you two major views of this text. First, uh, then I'm going to tell you which one I find to be the most convincing, and then we'll go through a couple of other places in the Gospels where Jesus says similar things and hopefully uh, shed some light on this text. But at the end of the day, please do not take this as a dogmatic interpretation. Uh, I freely admit that I may be wrong on some of the things, uh, my my own understanding, my, uh, how should I say this, my degree of confidence is not as high on some of the uh, verses in here as to what they are trying to communicate. 
And I could just stand up here and make confident assertions and hope that you don't know the difference, but I think it would be more honest for me just to admit right up the front that uh, you're going to be hearing me say a lot, I think this means this, uh, because there are some very difficult things to interpret. Now, before we dive in, we need to just introduce a concept that is part of the difficulty here. In the New Testament, and especially in the Gospels, there are two returns of Jesus that are spoken of. Okay, we, we think of uh, the return of Christ, the second coming, we think of at the end of the age, uh, when Jesus comes back and takes his seat on the throne. We know about that one. But there's also another coming, when Jesus comes in judgment against Jerusalem. Not that he literally comes back and sets foot on the earth, but that he comes on the clouds of heaven, punishing the inhabitants of Jerusalem. If you want to see a good text where both of these comings are spoken of, Matthew 24 and 25 are a good place to see this. And maybe it'll make more sense if you see it yourself. Matthew 25, verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So that is clearly talking about what we commonly refer to as the second coming. This is the end of the age. Uh, Jesus comes, takes his seat on the throne, and judges people in rules, injustice forever. We've been talking about that quite a bit in Sunday school uh, this morning. So you've got that coming, right, at the end of time when Jesus comes and takes a seat on the throne. But then there's another coming that Jesus speaks of in the previous chapter, Matthew 24, when he says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all tribes on the earth will mourn. Okay, so that already sounds very different. The previous one, he comes and takes his seat on the throne. This one, uh, they're mourning. They're afraid of him as he is coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 33, he says, When you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So this coming of Christ is not talking about in our future. This is talking about in the lifetime of the disciples. He's saying, before this generation passes away, I'm going to come in judgment against Jerusalem. That is what he is referring to there. It's talking about the attack of Jerusalem that did take place in that generation. Forty years later, A.D. 70, the Roman army attacked Jerusalem, sacked the city, destroyed the temple, and slaughtered hundreds of thousands of Jews. And this is, Jesus is saying, that was my coming in judgment against the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is, again, we're talking about two different comings. We need to differentiate. Sometimes the New Testament talks about Jesus coming on the clouds in judgment against Jerusalem, A.D. 70. Other times he talks about coming at the end of the age, sitting on the throne, ruling over the world forever. And those are two separate comings. So you could, if you, this is probably more confusing, you could call it the second coming and the third coming. And what we commonly call the second coming is actually the third coming. That probably doesn't help you though. Uh, what we're looking at today in Luke 17, it is my belief that this is the first of the two comings. And this is where, again, some of the controversy is. And at the end of the day, I can't say I am 100% certain of this. But I believe that this is Jesus prophesying in Luke 17 about the coming destruction and judgment against Jerusalem in AD 70. I don't believe this is end times. And I'll try to show you uh, why I think that as we go along and hopefully... I'll build a case for that. Luke 17, beginning in verse 22, he says to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Now, I take the days of the Son of Man. It could be talking about Jesus' return, 
but I don't think that's the case. I believe this is actually referring to the time when Jesus was on earth. Okay, so he's saying to his followers, there's coming a time when I'm going to be gone, and you will wish that you could be back here during this time when I was here. Okay, this will become clear, I think, later as we go through the text, why they will be missing these days, because these disciples are going to live to see the judgments of God against Israel. And they'll think back to these days when they were walking and talking with Jesus and think, man, I miss those days. If only we could go back. Uh, sort of like I, I hear a lot of people saying lately, boy, I miss 2019. Uh, now, nothing was overly spectacular about 2019, but during 2020, everybody missed 2019 because things were so terrible in 2020. And so we think, boy, those were the good old days. I may have not realized it at the time, but I wish I could go back to that time. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. There are bad days ahead. He's saying to the disciples, and in those days, you're going to long to see one of these days that you have with me here now. Verse 23, they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Now, that's a very ambiguous thing, right? What is that talking about? Well, I, I think, again, I think this is referring to people who would claim that Jesus had already come back. Uh, I take this meaning based upon Mark 13, which seems to be a parallel and clarifies the statement a bit more. Mark 13, 21, he says, If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is, uh, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. So Jesus is telling them, I'm coming back soon. But don't be led astray when some people claim that I've already come. When I show up, you're going to know it. It will be evident that I've arrived. That's verse 24. As lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, if somebody tells you, oh, Jesus came already. He's over here in the desert. Don't forget that. You will know when I come back, it'll be like a flash of lightning that will be clear and evident to everyone. It will be sudden, there will be no warning, and it will be obvious. No one's going to need to go looking for it. Verse 25, but first, so before this all happens, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So the first thing that happens is Jesus will be rejected and crucified by this generation. And we're going to come back to this later, but this is the catalyst for the coming judgment. It is their rejection and crucifixion of their Messiah that leads to this judgment against Jerusalem. Again, we'll come back to that uh, toward the end after we finish going through the text. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Again, talking about his return in judgment against Jerusalem. Now, let me offer a correction to what some have taken the statement to mean. The days of Noah, if you are familiar with the book of Genesis, were filled with sin. Uh, you know, in Genesis 6, it's pretty sick what was going on uh, during the world of that time, which, of course, is why God sent the flood, right? It was because of the evil and wickedness of, of man. But that is not the point here in Luke 17. Jesus is not saying, just like the days of Noah were characterized by rampant sin, so the days in which I return will be filled with evil all over. That's not the point here. Rather, Jesus is saying, just like in the days of Noah, when the flood came suddenly, uh, with no warning, boom, the flood hits, and it catches the people off guard. It was, they, they thought it was just another day. 
They went out going on as life as normal, and then all of a sudden the flood hit them. In the same way, the coming of Christ is going to be sudden and unexpected. Verse 27, he clarifies, they were eating and drinking, marrying, being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So they were carrying on as normal right up until the day when Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came suddenly upon them. Uh, the comparison to the destruction of Sodom in the next two verses is the very same point. Verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building. So they were carrying on as normal. And then verse 29, on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And so he's telling them this judgment is going to take place quickly and without warning. People will be going on about their normal daily business and the judgment of God will fall on them suddenly. Verse 31, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. And so he tells them, hurry out of Jerusalem. Uh, the judgment will be unexpected. It will be sudden. It will be swift. Don't be like Lot's wife who was looking back at Sodom and dragging her feet instead of just getting out of there. Verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Uh, taken is referring to those who will be taken by the invading Roman army. Okay, so there's going to be, this is again, a common misconception about what this is referring to. Uh, this is about being taken in the sense of being captured. You don't want to be taken. Okay, You want to be those who, who escape this judgment. Verse 35, there'll be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. So the point of all of this is Jesus is telling them, you don't know when this will come, but it will be sudden and you'd better be ready. It's the very same point that he made back in Matthew 24. This is, again, one reason that I... I believe these two prophecies are referring to the same event. Okay, Jesus uses much of the same language and comparisons there to describe this judgment that he said would be in their lifetime. He said, before this generation passes away, uh, the, this prophecy will be fulfilled. And so Matthew 24, verse 33, again, I believe this is a parallel passage. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So they don't know the day or the hour this will happen, but we do know the generation, right? I mean, Jesus says it's going to happen within this generation, but you don't know exactly when, so you better be ready. Verse 37, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will it be, uh, sorry, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So being swept away in the flood is the same as being taken away by the Roman army. That's the comparison there. Okay, verse 41. Two women will be, I'm sorry, verse 40, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Be alert, be watchful, be ready, because the judgment will come quickly. Verse 43, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. 
and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So this all seems clear enough. Judgment is coming. It's going to come suddenly and quickly, and you better be on your guard, or else you will be taken away in the judgment. This is a judgment, again, on that generation of Jews that killed Jesus, and it seems to be specific to the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so again, if you've heard these passages taught as end of the world, global judgment of all people, I think that is a mistaken interpretation. Um, In other places, when Jesus talks about this, he makes clear that this is a judgment against Jerusalem, and you can actually escape it if you flee to the mountains. Okay, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, referring to the Roman army, until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, so all of that seems very clearly to be talking not about a global end times judgment, but a judgment of God against the city of Jerusalem. And he's telling his disciples this as a forewarning, so that they know when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, run, (laughs) take off, because uh, people are not going to survive this. You're going to be taken away in the judgment of God against the rest of Jerusalem unless you get out. That's why he says, uh, don't go back into your house to grab stuff, run when you see this taking place. And so we finish up the text, verse 37, the disciples ask this clarifying question, they say to him, where, Lord? Now, to tell you the truth, I don't know what where, Lord, even means. Uh, kind of a weird question. Are they saying, where is this going to happen? Where will the one be taken? Where will the other be left? I don't really know. And just when you're hoping that Jesus will clear this up a bit, he responds, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Oh, perfect. Uh, it's all fitting together now. Uh, I think this cryptic answer that Jesus gives is an indication to us that it's not for the disciples to put it all together, when and where and how all of this will happen. But when it happens, it will be unmistakable. When you see vultures circling in the sky, you know something is dead right there. And so he's saying, when you see these signs taking place, uh, you're going to know it. It will be obvious. It will be evident. Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. The temple will be destroyed. Jews in Jerusalem will be killed and taken prisoner. And then you will know that this is what I was talking about. So this is a pretty gnarly text. Uh, This is the sort of thing that as a little boy I would have loved in Sunday school. Uh, Blood and guts and people being killed. Uh, But rather than being caught up in all of the details, I want to step back and ask, why is Jesus going to do this? What is the reason for this severe judgment that he's predicting will soon come upon Jerusalem? I think he alludes to it in, in our text in verse 24 when he says, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will, be, uh, sorry, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Okay, so this whole judgment that he's talking about is because of the Jews' rejection of their Messiah. Jesus had shown them by many proofs and miraculous signs that he was the divine Son of God. He had healed the sick, he had walked on water, he had fed 5,000. He had even raised dead people back to life, and yet the Jews rejected him. Uh, They called for him to be crucified. They may have been impressed by his power and his wisdom in teaching, 
But when he started telling people that they're sinners in need of a Savior, that they should repent of their sins and follow him as Lord, they didn't want to hear it. And ultimately, Jesus faced the same rejection that comes when a prophet of God preaches the truth of God's word. This is characteristic throughout Scripture. We see prophets coming to the people of Israel, giving them the words of God, and they often or almost always face rejection. Luke 11, verse 49 Jesus said, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Now that phrase, this generation, we're going to see it popping up over and over again. You saw it in our text in verse 25. He said, I'm going to be rejected by this generation. And here Jesus says in verse 50, all of the blood, all of the punishment, for the prophets of God that Israel had killed, it's going to come upon this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. The Jews, again, throughout their history, had killed the prophets that God had sent to them, giving them messages of warning and calls to repent. And so God sends his son into the world, and they treated him no differently. They rejected the message and killed the messenger. And so the judgment, the punishment, was going to be severe on this generation. They had killed the very Son of God. The one who had come to save them, they rejected and crucified. Jesus taught this in the parable in Mark 12. This was one of the few parables uh, that the Pharisees actually understood. Uh, normally, when Jesus spoke in parables, they, they didn't get the point at all. But here, it was so clear and so unmistakable that they understood Jesus was talking about them and about their rejection of him. Mark 12, verse 1, he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came... He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And so this man has a vineyard. He lends it out to people to grow his crops. He sends a servant to get some of the, what has been grown, and they beat him and send him away. Verse 4, again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. This is uh, clearly talking about how God had sent Israel prophets over and over throughout their history, and they treated them shamefully, they rejected them, they beat them, at times they killed them. Verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. This is referring to Jesus. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Then Jesus asks, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Of course he would do that. If, if, this, if these people that, that were supposed to be working for him were killing and beating all of his servants, and then they killed his own son, of course he would judge them severely for that. And so verse 10, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, the Pharisees were, but, fe but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They understood that Jesus was talking about their rejection of him. And so 
The judgment was coming, and the judgment would be just. It was because of the fact that they had killed the Son of God. They had been warned by Jesus repeatedly, and yet they called for his blood. In verse 20 of Matthew 27, Jesus is on trial before Pilate, and it says there, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Notice verse 25, all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus and delivered him to be crucified. The Jews in Jerusalem accepted the consequences for killing Jesus. They said, uh, let his blood be on us and on our children. And 40 years later, the judgment of God fell on them severely. And that's what Jesus is referring to, I believe, in this text. Now, I bet someone here is thinking, what on earth does any of this have to do with me? Uh, the Jews of Jesus' day rejected Jesus, and God sent judgment on Jerusalem, and Jesus is warning his followers ahead of time so they can escape. What on earth can we learn from such a text that seemingly has nothing to do with Christians living 2,000 years later? Here are a few thoughts. First of all, this is kind of a side note, we need to be very careful when talking about biblical prophecy. Uh, I think, I hope that I've demonstrated this morning that this prophecy of Jesus, along with many others in the Gospels, are about a judgment that was soon to come on the generation of Jews that killed Jesus. Yet many Christians in the last few decades especially have taught that these texts are end times prophecies. Okay? They've been looking for fulfillment in the current news reports in the Middle East instead of recognizing that Jesus isn't talking about the end of the world, but a judgment that was soon to come in AD 70. Christians tend to have a bad habit of assuming that biblical prophecy is talking about whatever events uh, are taking place around them in, in the time period in which they live. This has been the case for quite a while. Uh, back in the 1940s, many Christians believed Hitler was the Antichrist, or the Beast of Revelation, whatever you want to call him. Uh, he certainly persecuted the Jews, and he was trying to increase his rule over the whole world. And so Christians thought, well, uh, here's the fulfillment of that prophecy. The end must be very near. Jesus is going to come back any day now. Uh, fast forward to 1948, Hitler is dead, uh, and Israel becomes a nation. Uh, once again, the Jews return to their homeland from all over the world. And again, Christians during that time period looked at this and saw, oh, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And they thought Jesus must be coming back very soon, any day now. And after a few decades passed and things settled down a little bit, they were very confused uh, because Jesus had not come back and everything was basically back to normal. Well, one guy decided that maybe when Jesus said, this generation won't pass until all these things take place, maybe he was referring to the generation uh, that lived when, when Israel came back as a nation in 1948. And so since a generation is roughly 40 years, 40 years from 1948 would be 1988. And so this guy wrote a book titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Uh, the book became very well known and people were all up in a frenzy expecting the return of Christ at any moment. And guess what happened in 1988? Nothing. Uh, no Jesus, no rapture, nothing. 
Uh, later, by the way, he came back with another book saying he had miscalculated things and predicted it once again, I think in 18, uh, 1989, but again, didn't happen. Here we are in 2021, 30 years later, and guess what some of these guys are still doing all over television and the internet? Uh, you turn on any Christian network, pretty much, and they're going to be telling you, Jesus is coming back soon, uh, maybe within the next 5, 10, 20 years for sure. These guys uh, like this have been saying these sort of sensationalist things for literally decades. And what's even more amazing to me is that people still listen to them, and they still find these things to be credible. The reality is many of these texts, again, are not even talking about Jesus coming again in our future, but are referring to events in history that have already taken place. And as for those prophecies that are yet in our future— uh, in my opinion, it is simply a waste of time and energy to speculate about when they're going to happen and how all of those details are going to be worked out. Uh, you don't know, and neither do I. So my first application to us is simply to be very careful about biblical prophecy. These things are not easy to sort out, and they should not be a reason for Christians to divide. If you take a different view of some prophecy than someone else, uh, fine. That should not be something that Christians are uh, fighting about. Certainly, one of the most difficult things in all Scripture to interpret is biblical prophecy. And so we ought to have some theological humility on these texts to admit that uh, we may not be right about everything. There are some doctrines that are vital to our faith as Christians, and then there are some that are not. And good Christians can disagree about how to interpret these less clear portions of Scripture. Uh, another takeaway from what we studied this morning is that this really lends a lot of credibility to Jesus as the Son of God. I think that's what Jesus means in the text when he says that these will be a revealing of the Son of Man, meaning people who see all of this take place will come to realize that Jesus was who he said he was. He predicted the destruction of, of the temple and the massacre of Jews in Jerusalem. And he said when it would even happen. He said within this generation and 40 years later, it all happened just as he had predicted. That historical fact gives us good reason to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The early church, in fact, used these very prophecies as an apologetic for their faith, uh, saying that, yes, Jesus was a credible prophet in what he said, because, look, these things took place just like he had predicted. Now, the last and, I think, most relevant application for each of us. God will judge those who reject his son. Uh, this judgment that we've been talking about in AD 70 against Jerusalem, this is a small display of God's wrath towards the person who rejects Christ. And just like Jesus warned the Jews of his day of the coming judgment, over and over in Scripture, God reminds us that our fate will be the same in eternity if we reject Christ and the free offer of salvation through him. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you reject the Son of God, there simply is no other way to God. Jesus is the way. Acts 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Those who repent of their sins and believe the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are forgiven instantly and forever of all their sins. Those who reject this message will face God's judgment like those Jews who rejected him 2,000 years ago. And what happened in AD 70 in Jerusalem is nothing compared to the eternal judgment of God in hell. One of the most frightening passages of Scripture is found in Hebrews 10, where the author here is pleading with his listeners, do not reject this gospel of Christ, because there is no hope for the one who does so. Hebrews 10, verse 26, 
If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, after hearing the gospel, if you reject that, there will no, lo- there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Repeatedly in Scripture, God warns us of the consequences of rejecting Christ and his message. Do not take those warnings of God lightly. Believe the the gospel, turn from your sin, and follow Christ. Forgiveness awaits any who do, and judgments awaits those who do not. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.